0: Welcome to the PerfWeb Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. All right, hello and welcome to uh, session two, day two of PerfWeb 26. This is uh, now our 27th we- uh, webinar because we didn't count um, uh, a number for the New Orleans conference. So, But many of them are multi-day, so this i don't know exactly what broadcast this is but please uh, by the end of the show we're going to try to find out if what it is But i think it's probably close to 60 i believe so and then yesterday was a great day i don't know how many people were watching that are watching today watched yesterday but that was so incredibly ironic that we're doing a webinar on angiovac and there's an emergency angiovac case when the webinar is about to start. Mm-hmm. And two of the faculty, I get to go and have fun, which I had a lot of fun. Um, and one of our faculty, Dr. Matoyer, it's his case. So he's there with this big, giant thrombus in the, right. it was huge. It was. Do you still have that picture? Can you show that picture? Uh, you guys got to see what we did yesterday. It was incredible. I know today is about goal-directed therapy, but you got to see this. Would it be hard to do? Or is it, if it takes too long, don't worry about it. We'll take a few okay, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, I'll show it to you later. Yeah, we'll get At, back to it. After, yeah. break. after the break, yeah. So anyway, okay, so what do I need to tell them about? I need to tell them about um, Facebook. You gotta like us on Facebook. You have to sh- uh, like us and share. Is that right? Like us and share on Facebook. You have to subscribe on YouTube and click the bell for notifications. Please do that. There it is. There's an example of that. And then you also have to uh, do something, like us and follow us and share us on the Twitter. And also, please allow, also follow us on our new LinkedIn account. And there's that symbol there, okay? So I don't understand all this social media stuff. I understand you got to like, share, follow, share, notifications, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. Okay, our call-in number. There it is. All right, and this is going to be an interesting day today. Okay, I'm going to do yeah. my best to make it through this. And uh, also, so there's our call in number. Join our faculty as well. Look, we want to see you on this. Fa- you see it right there. You see it scrolling. We need you to join our faculty. If you're look, John, can can put the camera on John. John, you joined our faculty much in the same way, right? You, oh, I called you up. And I said, you know, or you called me up and mm-hmm. said, "Hey, I've got some really good information, good knowledge. I enjoy this kind of stuff. I love teaching." We talked for a little while. You came and did our first program a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. It was great. Um, and how come it's on me? Put it on, on. There you go, John. There, there you are. And uh, that, that looks a lot better. You are such a <laughs> dapper-looking man. So, but that's how that all happened. You know, tell the if you would tell folks, you know, what we can, what they. How, what the process is and what your experience has been, if you would.
1: Well, I didn't really know um, what you had all going on here uh, about eight, nine months ago. And I started finding you online and watching the programs, which are fabulous because they're free. It only, you only have to pay if you want the CEUs. And if you wanna just come on and learn, you can play them back, you can find topics, and go back from when you started now and and watch things that you can rewatch them at your leisure. And I had been working on some ideas, so I just gave you a call. I don't even think you knew who I was. I gave no, you a call. I'd I never met you before. About eight or nine months ago. And um, I said, Joe, um, you're looking for for speakers, you're looking for topics, and it says that on your on your site. You know, we're looking for people. and Yes. I guess, so that's how it started. And you said, love to have you come up, and, and that, that's what happened. And we came up and started doing them, and I think this is going to be my sixth or seventh
0: uh, talk in the last uh, four or five months. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's good. Okay, so um, there you go. The guys are there. So let's just go to a wide shot, guys. I think that just is best. Let's get everybody involved in this, okay, instead of just two people. And, uh, you know, we have these two great folks. So you have all know John. Over on the end over there, you see Rodell. He is our bow tie expert. (laughs) And he's been on several of our programs. Great guy. Great perfusionist. He's got 20 years experience. Um, Came out of THI. Just an all around very well, uh, uh, very well, just a very well versed. Uh, overall clinician and uh, practitioner, and somebody that I really enjoy working with a lot. And you've taught me a lot too, which I've really appreciated quite a bit. And then sitting right next to me, you all know Tammy. She was here yesterday, Tammy know, She's another 20 plus year perfusionist. Great, incredible skills. Came out of THI as well. Uh, worked predominantly in community-based settings, which is sort of the foundation you know, of our thing here. our Our, our webinars are really more, a lot less about meta-analyses and more about practical clinical experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's lacking a lot of times in when you go to these big meetings, they talk a lot about stuff that is very academic and I think it's important, but how do you translate all of that into practical application? And that's sort of always been my direction I guess that I've always gone. What's your experience been?
2: Well I think going to these bigger meetings is a good experience and you can learn a lot of things. You may even learn about topics that you've never thought of but you're right if there's no application on how you can put it into practice then you're just merely learning for the academic of it.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 I agree. Rodell what's what's your experience? So- like, what's your experience with this whole whole program that we're doing. What would you recommend to people? You know how I feel. Yeah, oh I know exactly you know how you feel. How that I, feel. That we I should you yeah. that live programs yeah. in person are important right. for this kind of collegiality. Because yeah. everybody that's out there watching this program yeah. should experience that. So I do think that conferences on site mm-hmm. are important for collaboration. Yeah. But we have a limitation: time, sure. money, all these sure. things that are an influence. You still have to be educated. So sure. I didn't mean to step oh, on. Oh no, 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 no! What's your experience? No, no, no!
3: I mean, when you presented this to me like a couple of years ago, when I first started, I said this is one of the greatest ideas. There is no one else doing this. I mean, if there is, it's it's severely lacking. Um, you actually put the time and and the investment into this. Um, it's very evidence based practice. I, I love it. And that's what I'm all about. I'm all about the results. You know, I'm not just, you know, in the OR to, you know, just hang on, turn rheostats, stats, you know, or that type of thing. I want complete patient care. I want to see them in the OR and all the way to home mm-hmm. or where they have to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and this is great. I mean, this collaboration is great. I mean, I, I've heard from a couple of my colleagues saying like, hey, how do I get on? Hey, what do I need to do well, to, to do this? why haven't they these? called me? They
0: have, actually, there's been a couple. I remember my buddy John in, at Ohio State. Yeah, okay, but why aren't they calling and joining our, our resident our faculty? Well, that's what I want them well, to do. Well, you
3: know, now, now that it's becoming a thing or a bigger thing, you know, maybe they will. It took 60
0: broadcasts? It took least, 60 uh, broadcasts. To get to be a thing? You have to trend. Yeah, they have a well, the
3: trend. You have to trend out there
0: absolutely but you know well, it's
3: it's oh we're trending
0: we're yeah t- we mm-hmm. are trending i like that. It's a new that's a new yeah. term we're trending on twitter
3: yes yes but you know it's it, like i said you know a couple of years ago when you presented this i thought it was the greatest thing
0: and you, you, and I, you and I
3: and talked that's about true. it. You did. We, we, had, we had a nice conversation about it. You know, there there's a younger generation that won't go to conferences. And, you know, I go to conferences only because that's what I knew. That's what I started out with. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it they get into some minutiae. And, you know, you, you take what, you know, you want to get out of it. But a lot of it is is really just sometimes peacocking. hmm you know, and, and I don't care for that. I mean, peacocking is great and, you know, they have some
0: great information, but how can I take that to my practice?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't need well, that. Yeah, and I don't like to say, you know, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I I guess my view is, is that I think programs, I think there are some great conferences mm-hmm. out yeah. there. And uh, and I enjoy going to really good conferences. I, enjoy, oh, I really enjoy the collaboration. Um, but I also think that there will be others. I don't think there's anybody doing live webinars like this on such a routine basis that I'm aware of other than us at this point in time. I think others will because I frankly just think that's going to be the trend in how we become educated.
2: Well don't you think too that it has to do with instead of doing your conference every year and a half or so now you can do your conference and you can also learn in between that time right. with the webinars.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that's very true. Right. And I think that, yes, that's a very good point. And I think, too, that having, having these programs um, readily available, they're they're free. Mm-hmm. We all know that. I, I tell people that all the time. I, I try not to um, perhaps uh, say it so often that it becomes gratuitous, but it's a sincere feeling that I have is that all of us, have experience and the best way to, for us to contribute back to our profession is, has been good to all of us. All of us are pretty senior sitting at this table. We've all been around for right. a while. And I'm sure there's some senior people out there that are either watching this now or will watch us later when they watch the program in whatever way they do. Uh, but there's also a lot of young folks out there. Right. And uh, you know, they're looking for people like us who have all of this experience. I mean, sitting at this table is, Twenty, 46, over a hundred years of experience. This is over a hundred years worth of clinical experience combined. Right. That's a lot of years.
1: Joe, you know, I would add something too, right? I, I found different, one of the reasons I called you, how many times have all of us been to a meeting and you go there for two, three days and you come back on Monday and you don't do anything <laughs> different than when you left right. on Friday? Mm-hmm. And you've right. learned a lot of academic things and it was interesting and educational, but you came right back to doing the same thing. I found, with the way you do this with the panel discussions after after somebody presents, most of the time I'm able to take something back that I could actually do different. I think Mm -hmm. that's really the key. Mm -hmm. You can go to conferences and conferences year after year and you come back and how many times have you actually said, oh, I'm gonna now do this different. I was doing something
2: Mm -hmm. less than
1: favorable Mm -hmm. or wrong. Mm -hmm. Almost never, you've probably had that experience. Mm -hmm. Don't you
2: think too it's the casual nature that you've set up here that it's um, less formal so people can just have regular discussions Mm -hmm. You don't, uh, sometimes it's difficult when you go to larger conferences. Right. There's the pressure of everyone's listening to the question and all that kind of thing. Even when they have those little roundtable discussions mm-hmm. afterwards,
0: mm-hmm. Right.
2: they know they're in a big audience and it has more of a formal feel.
0: I have to tell you, this is probably the funniest thing that has ever happened to me at a conference. <laughs> okay. It was last year at our what was our, what was our final, the New Orleans conference, mm-hmm. okay, in New Orleans and i received a question on youtube chat and it took a while to finally figure out that the person who asked the question on youtube chat was actually physically in the audience oh my (laughs) Mm -hmm. they didn't want to come to the mic they didn't want to come to the mic and i think that's something that we're experiencing here too with our when we open the phone lines Mm -hmm. yeah people don't want to say it. they 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 just they're uncomfortable with it. I don't. I guess it's a human trait. I've never been. I mean, right. it's my my sort of my uh, my nature is to be rather outgoing yeah. and gregarious and unafraid of sounding dumb.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but you know, I think that uh, a lot of people have that. They have a great question. They're actually really really bright. Right. But they're still afraid to ask something that others might already know or look down upon right well here's the thing i've been to
3: conferences where a question is posed and then someone else in the audience answers and just punishes them for Mm -hmm. asking the question i've been there and i'm I go. Wait a minute. I thought this was a collaborative effort. This is and this is for education, me. and that really bothered me. That bothers me. And too. I was a young perfusionist, and I and that kind of scarred me. I don't want to go up to the mic because there's a senior perfusionist that may come up who's you know delved deep in academia, and I know that this person is. Um, I won't share it, but I know who it is too. Yeah. So they just buried the person mm-hmm. and just embarrassed that that professional,
1: mm-hmm.
3: a colleague. And that's terrible. And that's terrible. That's terrible.
1: Well, the good thing about what you're doing here, Joe, is that they can send you a, a chat or an email.
0: Yes. And, right.
1: Uh, yeah, they don't I have even to have
0: difficulty and getting people to yeah, chat. Yeah, they, they don't do that as I, much either. But, but, but at least you I, could
1: send your question in yeah. without having to be live
0: on the air. Yeah. And But and, what and, I've heard in talking to uh, Magic, because it's always bothered me, and, and I never really understood it. So YouTube is m- not really a very strong live platform that people go to YouTube, type in a search to look for something and they watch it. So our post-produced uh, pr- post or, or historical stuff on YouTube is watched a lot. Our live programs are watched the most of all, believe it or not, Twitter. Really? Oh, really? That has Whoa. our highest level really? of live watching because <laughs> they get a notification, PerfWeb yeah. is live, yeah. And they just have their phone and turn it on, and there yeah. it is, and they can watch it. Hmm. And so, and Facebook. Facebook is second. Twitter's first, Facebook second, and then YouTube. Is that correct, Magic? Yeah. I have that right. And then, uh, so, that I think that's part of the problem, too, is that the chat feature is available on YouTube. I monitor it, but, you know, not that many people use it because that's really pretty low as far as people who watch it live. Hmm. Which I thought it was interesting, too. And I had that, that explained to me by the technical gurus over there. Okay, are we ready to go ahead and get my talk going? Yes. Okay, so my talk is gonna be on early goal-directed therapy and DO2, and these are tied together. And look, I'll just tell you up front that I, I really got into goal-directed therapy for sepsis back in the early 2000s about 2003 when I started getting really involved in CRRT and I started getting involved in uh, which is a, a great therapeutic modality for those patients especially when they do have acute kidney, acute renal failure but you can use it also just for maintaining homeostatic neutrality I and mean, it's very for homeostasis it's very very, very good um, but also looking at other methodologies for measuring cardiac output and indirectly measuring DO2 because a lot of the work, and I'm going to talk about Shoemaker, but there's been others. I don't mention uh, anything from Dr. Rivers, but he came after Shoemaker. Shoemaker for me was my first sort of entree into uh, goal-directed therapy and what it is. So let's talk about it. So I want to give some acknowledgments on my slides and data that come from Dr. Lundy Campbell uh, at UCSF, and uh, John trite who in his, uh, in his book was the section editor for oxygen delivery in septic shock. Early observations of survivors. Uh, so Shoemaker and others published multiple observational studies looking at shock survivors, septic shock survivors. And their findings were survivors achieve a higher value of cardiac index, oxygen delivery, O2 consumption, and lower oxygen extraction levels. Underlying assumption by them was that maximizing DO2 would increase O2 consumption and reduce tissue hypoxemia. Now, what's important to understand is, and you'll see it as we move forward, that they were looking at supranormal values and just doing everything they could to drive DO2 well beyond what would be considered normal. Ultimately, that's sort of been debunked as a a thing that really does improve, but in Shoemaker's talks uh, or, or publication, which I'll show you, he actually showed a lot of survival benefit by doing that. So does Shoemaker make sense? Well, it seems intuitive that improving tissue oxygenation would be beneficial, okay? It's intuitive what level of do2 however should be targeted and perhaps timing of intervention is important in other words once you create such a deficit can you really catch up and it's kind of like ecmo i think in there's some ways patient selection certainly may be important i think that applies to everything so the things that i'm probably most interested in are the first two does affecting oxygen delivery matter well many varied and conflicting studies regarding that over the years up till current time they cover a wide variety of icu patients they're instituted at various times sounds again it sounds just like ecmo it sounds like i'm talking about ecmo and the data data is a methodological quagmire in other words it's just very difficult to analyze all of this data So in the Shoemaker's uh, uh, paper from 1988, there were essentially two different and very difficult studies tied into one. There were significant issues with methodology, critically ill non-cardiac high-risk surgical patients divided into two groups, control and protocol, each with their own hemodynamic goals. In the control group, they went Uh, for a DO2 of 2.8 to 3.5 as an index, which would equate to a 400 to 550 uh, uh, milliliters and a consumption of 120 to 140, where the protocol index was driven up to 4.5 on the cardiac index, a DO2 of greater than 600, uh, and that's that's indexed, and a consumption of greater than 120. All groups received fluids, inotropes, pressors, dilators, and so forth, as needed. 252 patients ended up being randomized to control versus protocol, and when started, uh, when the study uh, period was started, pre-op versus post-op. Analyzed the patient mortality by subgroup, early versus late, control versus protocol cardiac index normal at baseline versus elevated at baseline. In all groups combined, the control 57 out of 168 had 34% mortality, quite high. Hmm. The protocol group had a 19% mortality. That is a statistically very significant uh, uh, decrease. Patients with normal pre-op hemodynamics were had a, had a mortality in the control group of 28%. So starting off with normal values decreased your mortality right off the start, and the uh, protocol group went down to 10%. So once you flip the over the edge to having abnormal or compromised hemodynamics would be perhaps a better, a more appropriate way to say it. You were already behind the eight ball. And catching back up again made a statistically significant difference as to your mortality, even if treated with this very significant change in protocol. Because remember, this is 1988. How they treated patients then, very different to how they treated patients now. So in a second series, 146 patients met the criteria for study. 58 were not randomized because 45 were not considered sick enough. The split remaining of 88 patients into three groups, a central venous catheter control group with normal hemodynamic targets, a pulmonary artery catheter control group with normal uh, hemodynamic targets, and a PAC protocol group with supraphysiologic targets. Analysis for mortality, the central venous catheter group seven out of 30 died, 23%. If you use the PA to control the hemodynamics, PA catheter, then 10 out of 30, you had 33% death. But look at the protocol group with the supra-physiologic cardiac output, and uh, especially DO2 more specifically, 4%. That's That's huge. When I I remember reading this paper back then, um you know back in the in the 90s it made a an impression on me i was i was i was i was definitely affected by this and thought to myself the problem that we have is we and this is translating into cardiac surgery and our patients who are on ecmo vv ecmo is probably one of the most complex things that we do it seems simple enough right oxygenate the blood but a lot of our vv ecmo patients are septic yeah. Mm-hmm. When we're VV, we are not providing <laughs> circulatory support and I think when you see the rest of this you'll sort of kind of see where my mind went back then that I've I've always felt that we're missing something. Um what that something is I'm not 100% certain but we're missing something. So, let's go through some introductory stuff that's going to be important to understand. And uh, this is going to segue kind of into John's talk, but So, what's the background on O2 delivery? Why do we measure it? Does affecting it matter? How to make sense of this and what my recommendations are. So, the background on oxygen delivery includes terms, formulas, how do we measure it, how to measure oxygen consumption, how to measure cardiac output and cardiac index. So, oxygen delivery, TO2, DO2, amount of oxygen delivered to the body tissue in one minute And there's your formula. Oxygen consumption, or VO2, is the rate of oxygen removed from blood for use by the tissues. VO2 is measured with calorimetry. Now, we have to do that indirectly. What is the the result of energy usage in metabolism of oxygen? Or, or, or let's say aerobic metabolism. What, what happens from the energy usage or the metabolism? What happens? You expel something. Produce carbon dioxide. Produce carbon dioxide, exactly. <clears throat> oxygen extraction, as reflected by EO2, is the slope of the oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption relationship, often expressed as O2 extraction ratio. And there's your formula there with your normal values. Normal value for DO2 is about 500 um, uh, as an index meters uh, per meter squared, or about a thousand for the average person. And uh, say, oxygen delivery is not measured directly. DO2 equals cardiac output times the arterial oxygen saturation content, the content of the uh, the arterial blood. And that is measured by the formula hemoglobin times 1.36 times the saturation plus 0.0031 times the PaO2. We all know that. Normal values, 1,000 mLs per minute or 500 milliliters per meter squared. Oxygen consumption could be measured by reverse Fick. But more practically, it's done indirectly by calorimetry. Normal values at rest. Approximately three milliliters per kilogram per minute, or 250 mLs per minute, and that's going to be reflected by your venous oxygen saturation and your venous your venous uh, CO2 uh, PCO2. So, this slide is a little. Interesting. I'm going to use my 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 little uh, uh, mouse here. So, in this box that you see here, you basically have what will be enough oxygen to have aerobic metabolism and not develop any lactate. So critical, oops, what happened? What did I do? There, sorry. So critical DO2, which is here where C is, is the point below which oxygen consumption is limited by delivered oxygen content or amount. The slope of the line, which is this line right here, is going to be uh, the oxygen, is, is, uh, uh, is essentially going to angle based on the oxygen extraction rate. So if you look at the oxygen extraction, 80%, 60%, 50%, this line will angle based on what the O2 extraction is. All right? So what you're looking at here is, As your oxygen delivery comes down and you reach this critical point, as you continue to go down, your oxygen consumption actually also goes down. You would, you know, for obvious reasons because of the delivery, and you start to have increasing lactic acidosis. So, this window here. This is the critical value. This is the point below which oxygen consumption is limited. Now, the consumption by the delivered amount, and it starts to fall with increasing um, uh, lactic acidosis. And the angle of this is going to be dependent upon what your extraction is, 80%, 60%, 50%. Obviously, if your extraction, lower your extraction, the better off you are. This is maybe a little easier way to understand that rather complicated graph. So if you look at oxygen consumption here on the left side, in the blue line, and look at it from right to left, you have oxygen consumption, and you have, in your red line, lactate. As your oxygen delivery goes down, which is down here on this line, goes down, you'll see that you reach a critical point. Now, any further decrease in oxygen delivery will result in a decrease in oxygen consumption and an increase in lactate level. Mm -hmm. So a little easier to see this graph versus the other. And here you can see that your oxygen extraction ratio continues to increase because those tissues want it until you reach this critical point, at which point this is going to have an effect on that which is opposite of what you would want so what is involved in o2 delivery well there is a vo2 max and vo2 max is basically the amount of oxygen consumed relative to exercise intensity you can go you can you can basically stress yourself as much as you want but once you achieve your VO2 max, you cannot, have, you cannot consume any more oxygen. Now that can be affected by a variety of things, including and probably predominantly training. However, if we look here, hey, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm just saying he never even slows down on hills and it raises red flags. And we have a bicyclist and he has a bag of blood because he's blood doping himself, and this raises his hemoglobin, this is his blood he's giving back to himself. And of course, he gets his hemoglobin level, he gets his O2 content up and his O2 delivery, and you can shift this VO2 max over almost instantaneously. So, how do we control the DO2-VO2 ratio? Well, we can increase O2 content, increase the hemoglobin and increase the FiO2. How do we, we can increase cardiac index. We can decrease regional oxygen consumption, hypothermia or controlling hyperthermia and the control work of breathing, paralyze the patient, add sedation, all of that stuff. If they're flailing around on the bed, they're consuming a lot of oxygen. And we've seen a lot of patients on ECMO who all it takes is one little bit of moving, shaking, shivering, whatever it is, and their sats plummet. Yes. So they're just living on that edge all the time. So how do we measure cardiac index or cardiac output cardiac index? Well, we have non-invasive techniques, which is the thoracic electrical bioimpedance method. And I, I've studied this before. I'm not that convinced. They say it's really quite accurate, but I kind of discounted it some years ago. There's the minimally invasive, which I'm a huge believer in. Um, the lithium dilution cardiac output curve, also known as uh, the Lidco, which uh, I've used multiple. I've used it multiple times and absolutely love the device. It uses pulse contour analysis in order to determine a whole variety of things. Mm -hmm. It can measure intrathoracic volume by looking at systolic pressure variation, pulse pressure variation, the slope of the curve, everything. And it gives you a, you essentially take that pulse contour and you've calibrated it with the lithium dilution so you know what that pulse contour and cardiac output actually mean, so it's not Quite like you're just putting it on there and using the pulse contour analysis. But when you look at the flow track, which is a very popular system yes. by Edwards, and of course, Edwards is a huge company, Litco, a very small company, and they don't calibrate it at all. And I've always had uneasiness with that. However, their studies show that it's pretty accurate. Hmm. But I'm one of those people, trust but verify. I want to do a lithium dilution curve or a, or some type of validation that the mm-hmm. cardiac output really is what it is. Now TEE, the best way to do oh, it. Yes. That's all, hundred percent. Yeah. And when you take Lidco with their calibration and TEE, and Tee. it is like on the money, very accurate device. Um, invasively, oh there you can do uh, echo or you know tra- TEE. Transpulmonary cardiac output, of course, with a PA catheter um, and uh, SV- scvo VO two monitoring. Now, SVO two monitoring is a little different than um, uh, than uh, SVO two monitoring. So, when you look at the central venous saturation, okay. and you, you you just draw a line, you know, from your PA catheter or whatever, and you you have that that you're measuring it from the right atrium. It's very different than if you measure it. If from the superior vena cava. And the SCVO2 is actually the superior vena cava saturation. Normally, Hmm. the SVO2 coming from the top part of the body is lower Mm -hmm. than it is from the lower part of the body. However, when you're septic and you're in septic shock, it's frequently the other way around. And it's actually a diagnostic tool to look at your SVO2, SCVO2. so why measure, why do we do this? Shock states, shock physiology, cycle of dysoxia, early observations of shock and critical illness and and survivors, going back to Shoemaker again, and Rivers uh, from Detroit, actually. Rivers is from Detroit, he's an ER physician from Detroit. And
3: kidding. he
0: actually, yeah. he patented the, this uh, SCVO2 catheter that okay. measures um, the uh, saturation in the superior vena cava. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What is it that we care about in shock? Well, blood pressure and oxygen delivery. That's obvious. Shock ph- uh, physiology. Lack of adequate perfusion leads to a cycle of cell dysfunction, which leads to decreased ability of cells to use the, uh, consume the oxygen, leads to cell death, and eventually death of the organism. And here's a cycle, uh, kind of a drawing. You have decreased cardiac index here leading to decrease in DO2, leading to cell dysfunction, leading to O2 consumption decrease, leading to a further decrease in cardiac output and index, and it just goes round and round and round until uh, it circles the drain and goes, uh, finally disappears into the abyss. So DO2, here's an interesting graph I thought was worth looking at, kind of a takeaway message. Uh, DO2 is affected by arterial oxygen content and cardiac output. Arterial oxygen content is affected by the, uh, capacity, which the hemoglobin, the saturation and the partial pressure, the PaO2 and cardiac output is affected by heart rate and stroke volume. And so there's your formula for getting DO2 and your, uh, uh, cardiac, uh, arterial, ar- arterial oxygen content. Uh, this graph here I put on to show how in the um, preload, your left ventricular and diastolic volume, this is the Starling curve, we're all very familiar with it. You see the Starling curve here, you reach the top of the curve, and it doesn't matter how much more volume you give, it's not going to go up. In fact, it's going to go down, we know that. But adding inotropes to the uh, situation like dobutamine increases this stroke volume And so you push your Starling Curve a little further north and can gain cardiac uh, output by using inotropes. So appropriate use of inotropes is very important when we deal with patients who are in shock, whether it be septic or just shock in general, I believe. So let's look at this case. A 70-year-old man with a history of congestive heart failure was brought to our hospital because of altered mental mental status. On arrival in the emergency department, he had a temperature of 35.5. Uh, centigrade, so he was uh, hypothermic, a heart rate of 125, respiratory rate of 32, and blood pressure of 74 over 38 with a mean of 50, and examination revealed a necrotic draining right <laughs> foot ulcer. So I would say he seconded. Uh, the arterial blood gas measurement showed a pH of 7.16, PCO2 of 38, PAO2 of 80, He had a white cell count of Uh, 22.223. He had, no, that can't be 223. I think I made a mistake there. Um, And uh, his hemoglobin was seven. He had a bar carb level of 14 and an ion gap of 24 and a lactate level of 11. That's huge. That's high. That's scary high. (laughs) The patient was diagnosed with septic shock and was started on broad-spectrum antibiotics, aggressive fluid resuscitation, which usually leads to fluid overload. We all know that. And vasopressor agents. He was intubated and sedated for respiratory distress, and a central line was placed, and the central venous pressure was initially 1. So he needed fluid, there's no question about it. But he was probably also vasoplegic. He probably was just massively dilated three hours later after four liters of crystalloid the heart rate had decreased to 105 so there was some progress and blood pressure had increased to 95 with the mean of 65 the saturation of venous blood uh, from the superior vena cava there's that scvo2 again was 52 percent and repeat lactate was nine so that's pretty, that's still really low, that's low. I know that I said that that sometimes can be reversed and that that's a diagnostic tool, but 52 is really low. That's not one of those one of those things. So what are the problems? There's a persistent elevated lactate indicating suboptimal oxygen delivery and tissue hypoxemia. There's a low superior vena cava saturation Despite attempts to increase preload, stroke volume, and thereby cardiac output, this patient's lactate has remained high. So, the clinical solution in this case, increase DO2 by increasing content. They took the hemoglobin from 7 to 10, an immediate improvement. They added dobutamine and titrated it to give them a cardiac index of 2.2 liters per meter squared. They increased the SCVO2 to 71%, and they got the lactate to finally normalize. And the patient was weaned from pressors and extubated in two days. Now, let's just hypothetically say that we took this patient, put this patient on VV ECMO. They'll say that they intubated them, they still couldn't oxygenate them, they still weren't happy, and they put them on VV ECMO but we didn't treat, we made them a little better because Mm. we got some oxygen in them, but we never really treated the underlying problem of the delivery. Now we've increased the the content. We did that, okay, because we added VV ECMO, but the circulatory dysfunction is still there. And I really wonder whether VV ECMO in this scenario would have been enough, and I'm gonna rely on John for this one, or adding VVA to this patient hmm. for a period of time would have made sense. John, what do you
1: think? We do. We see that all the time. We do a VV ECMO, and all of a sudden we'll add an arterial.
0: So why? So, so I'm not <coughs> crazy. And what what
1: would have been this patient's uh, cardiac output before they treated it?
0: Well, it was lower than 2.2, since that was okay. their goal. So let's go back and see if they told us what it was. So um, their well, I mean, based on those labs, I would say it was pretty poor, and their uh, blood pressure. I don't think I have that.
1: Well, well, what I was going to say was, you said earlier they treated with four liters four of crystalloid fluid. So what does that do to your hemoglobin?
0: Drops it. Drops it, it. So like now your
1: rocket. oxygen delivery just took a major hit. Yes. You were able to volume uh, manage the patient and, and saw some improvement, but your oxygen delivery dropped. Mm-hmm. So probably should have been giving blood either along with the crystalloid or in place right. of yes. the crystalloid. And you would have had a hemoglobin of 10 much sooner than what they probably ended up with but as far as answering your question if you when you're on vv ecmo if you're not near flowing and oxygenating near the cardiac index in other words if the cardiac index is eight and you're only flowing three
0: into a vv ecmo
1: you're not oxygenating but 30 40 percent of what's coming through and we see that all the time too and in um in sepsis for example you might see somebody with a very high cardiac output, right? Yeah. And you can't keep up with your VV ECMO. Mm-hmm. So we then take either additional venous drainage cannulas that try to flow more or yn into and get an arterial cannula. Mm-hmm. So we're directly uh, oxygenating arterial site. I'm looking so we forward see to that al- we see that tomorrow because all I came
0: to your hospital and I saw something that I thought was crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you showed it to me. I was like, come on, are you serious? I've never <laughs> seen anything like it in my life. Okay, so... Um, I showed you this graph earlier, explained it, but take this when you, you know, when you, when you, when you want to sort of take a snip, snapshot of it, you know, on your computers or whatever, and apply it to this, and you see easily how this, what you see here, dealing with O2 delivery and not being below this critical DO2 point where everything seems to go the wrong direction. Lactate up, consumption down. You want to be more over here. I think this is your safety zone over here. I don't necessarily think there's evidence that continues to support super normal values like way out here, but I think somewhere in this range is your safety window in terms of O2 delivery. (laughs) And it bothers me that we really don't measure it. We really don't, we don't measure it. It's a simple formula, it's simple to figure it out, but. When you're on pump and you're busy or, you, you know, you've got so many other things, distractions going on, like you have to do QCs on the blood gas analyzer, okay? Which is why you should use the Siemens Rapid Point 500 plug for you there um, because it does the QCs automatically and it's always available. And I actually think that has a DO2. Uh, it might have it. I'm not sure.
1: Well, um, I'm going to mention an easy way to monitor your DO2 on pump when during my talk. A really easy way to do it good without having a fancy monitor and doing a whole bunch of you know different things so
0: you want to do it now or you want to do it during your talk? no
1: no we'll do it my talk. tomorrow it's, or today no today the next one okay oh, yeah.
0: okay so correlating this to perfusion which is going to be john's job that's his that's the next talk do we flow enough during cpb well the question really should be do we optimize because mm. do we flow enough well you have to get the operation done they can't see, they need the flow down. No, we're not flowing enough, but are we optimizing? Are we flowing as much as we can, doing the best job we can to get enough flow to maybe not be at that tipping point so they can do the operation, or are we just not flowing enough? I I think you really have to look at this more critically. You have to be more realistic about what we do. You can't just say, I have to flow five and a half liters or six liters on this patient and the surge is, the heart's blowing up and I can't operate for Christmas sakes, help me here. We have to figure out how to do this. But then if you're one of those people that thinks, oh my God, I can never give a blood transfusion. It's the worst thing I could do. I'm gonna go to hell and I'm gonna burn in the abyss for the rest of my life if I give blood, but the hemoglobin is six. And you're having to optimize flow to help facilitate the operation, and you're not at 24, or 26 degrees. You're rather at 32 or 34 or 30 or normal thermic. We got to think about this. I don't know that we really think this through real well. There's just everybody's sort of all over the map. But anyway, and they have good outcomes. Would it matter on a big swath of patients? Probably not. Would it matter on a few? Probably so. But we just don't think that way. But that's important. I think that's something we're missing. But, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going getting on my high horse here. How we manage our ECMO patients. Many VV patients are in septic shock, in fact. Temperature management, I think very important. Types of monitoring, DO2 and VO2. And do we optimize? Thank you. Okay, okay. so. Thank you so much. Uh, the, oh, the, audience <laughs> is, the audience is applauding. A huge audience. You know, if you want tickets to come to the MediWeb studio, all you got to do is tell me you want to give a talk, and you get free tickets. For you and your family. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. S- I don't pay transportation yeah, or right. anything. You got to get yourself here. But you are, you can come here. yeah. And just to come on this in here would be, would be something. Now, do yeah, you want to do yours from there? Can you see that screen, or do you want to do it from uh, here where I sit? No, I have this monitor. I, I think here. I'll be able to see fine. You'll be okay?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, we have the clicker. Oh, here's the clicker. I just
0: go forward from here. That? What do you need this for? I don't know if you want to oh. move your mouse around. Oh, okay. If you don't, then don't worry about it. Yeah, I'll take
1: okay. it. Okay. I don't think I need it's... that. Well, that was, ex- could... that was excellent, Joe, because the, the prelude you. to what I'm going to talk about, it couldn't have been more, more ideal. The way you worked into it from how goal directed therapy started, and it really did start with sepsis. And in fact, I read an article uh, as a sideline to researching this that before Dr. Rivers and Shoemaker did the groundbreaking work that they did, the the uh, mortality was somewhere in the high 40s dropped all the way down to the low 20s for sepsis because mm-hmm. of the treatment that they did. It's probably yeah, they a lot better. You
0: have a surviving sepsis campaign. Right. It's huge. Mm-hmm. And actually I think it was higher it was closer to 60%. Yeah, oh, was. It? Mortality and, and, for and sepsis. Dropped. If you wow. came to the ER, if you were admitted to the ER with a diagnosis of sepsis, 60% mortality. What that you, was your number. What do
1: you think it is now in the 20s or less? I,
0: yes, I do. Yeah, I think it's that, that's,
1: yes. that's the impact that those mm-hmm. gentlemen had actually. And Part of what I'm going to talk about here is there's a group of about four or five researchers that really started looking into goal-directed perfusion, probably in the early 2000s. And I'm going to really give a little tribute to them because the impact that they've had improving perfusion and it hasn't fully taken hold yet because part of what you just said about the difficulty in us monitoring delivery of oxygen on top of everything else we're doing is kind of holding people back so hopefully we can make a little progress on that but the day will come when we monitor delivery of oxygen as a as a global uh, field and we're gonna see I think a big impact so um, I don't have any disclosures on this lecture uh, but what was the premise of goal-directed perfusion well Originally, and still still sort of is, is high-oxygen delivery during bypass is associated with better renal, better renal outcomes, less ischemic-related complications, and shorter ICU and hospital stays. But what is the best means of achieving it, and how is it determined? Well, what is traditional perfusion? Traditional perfusion techniques gauge adequate perfusion according to body surface area and cardio temperature. This is something we all do every day, right? And has been shown to achieve high DO2, delivery of oxygen, in about half of the cases. So I took a little ad hoc survey, Joe, when you called me a few months ago and said would I do a talk on gold directed perfusion. And I went around, we have a, a lot of perfusions that I know and I can talk to, and I asked them, you know, what do you think gold directed perfusion is? And I got a whole variety of answers and I don't think I got any of them that were actually correct. I did actually take it back. One gentleman, perfusionist that has many years experience, didn't know exactly what it was. But I was shocked that I wasn't the only one who didn't know exactly how to define it. So some people said, oh, it's AMSEC standards and guidelines. Well, the American Society of uh, AMSEC has created standards and guidelines based on clinical evidence and currently accepted perfusion practices. And this document is intended to serve as a useful guide for teams developing institution-specific protocols to improve the liability, safety, and effectiveness of their extracurricular support services. AMSEC recommends that clinical teams use this document basically as a guide for developing their own protocols and for patients receiving extracorporeal support. So the answer is no. Um, Gold Direct Refusion is not this AMSEC standards and guidelines. Uh, Some people said, well, it's evidence-based medicine. It's the same thing. Well, I'm gonna come back to this in a minute instead of answering that. Well, what's the generic definition of goal-directed perfusion? And these these are my words actually here. It's not something that I read because if you Google generic definition of goal-directed perfusion, I don't think anything comes up, but it's providing the optimal clinical techniques, methods, and pharmaceutical treatments available to ensure adequate delivery of oxygen, but not only that, nutrients and fluid balance to the tissues in a clinical setting whereby the patient is no longer physiologically capable of doing so on his own. Well, what is a more specific de- definition? Goal directed perfusion during bypass focuses on perfusion techniques that have been verified to achieve a high delivery of oxygen to the tissues with a consequential reduction in various ischemic related complications, with a particular focus on reducing acute kidney injury. So how does goal-directed perfusion research studies differ from traditional research? And this is where it starts to become interesting. Traditional research perfusion studies observe a particular clinical or laboratory setting. They collect data and in order to learn or draw conclusions from that information. Well, goal-directed perfusion studies, on the other hand, perform a specific perfusion strategy in order to achieve a specific target goal and then assess the degree to which they've attained these target goals. We're going to talk about this. So is it evidence-based medicine? Well, an evidence-based practice is any practice that relies on scientific evidence for guidance and decision-making. Practices that are not evidence-based may rely on tradition, intuition, and other unapproved methods. So therefore, goal-directed perfusion and evidence-based medicine practices most certainly overlap one another and are, in many ways, closely connected. So what are some of the goal-directed perfusion parameters that one can look at if you're going to do a goal directed study hematocrit and hemoglobin, fluid balance and nutrition, electrolyte balance, blood pressure, vascular resistance, both SVR and PVR, blood osmolarity and protein content, oxygen content of the blood, blood flow or cardiac output, arterial venous oxygen sats and the PO2s of each, lactate levels, and most importantly, delivery of oxygen and carbon dioxide production. Well, what is delivery of oxygen? Joe touched on this a little bit. Oxygen delivery is defined as the amount of oxygen delivered to the tissues or capillaries per minute. But how is it determined? Well, it has to be calculated, which Joe also talked about. Delivery of oxygen is the blood flow times the oxygen-carrying content of the blood. And of course, that breaks down to blood flow times the oxyhemoglobin portion, which makes up 97% of the the amount, and the dissolved oxygen in the plasma, which makes up about 3% of the amount. And that formula is the same thing that Joe was talking about, blood flow times 1.36 times the hemoglobin times the saturation of oxygen, 0.0031 times partial pressure of oxygen, your PO2. So when you look at this, what are the focus points that we can, the parameters that we should focus on as perfusionists? Well, in purple there you see Blood flow is something we can control. Hemoglobin is something we, we, we monitor. We, we certainly uh, look at and control our arterial saturation. And we certainly control our PaO2. So those are the four variables. But you can actually simplify this. Because any of us, even doing mod- modestly diligent perfusion, should always shouldn't have to worry too much about our PaO2s being low. We should all be somewhere in the triple digits or higher uh, 150 probably be the lowest that most people would run, way higher. And that's going to give you a 99% or really 100% arterial saturation. So to me, those are kind of already a given. And that simplifies it because now, as perfusionists, we can just focus on what is our blood flow and what is our hemoglobin level. And this is what's going to give us an adequate delivery of oxygen. Okay? So we need to look at delivery of oxygen index, which is we're delivering a certain amount of oxygen per body surface area, right? And of course, that's the same formula divided by BSA. So how much delivery of oxygen index do we provide on bypass? Well, the normal adult rest range is somewhere between 450 and 800. I think, Joe, in your talk, you said something like 500 to 1,000 milliliters of oxygen per minute per meter squared. And this can vary because it depends on what the person's hemoglobin is. If you plug in somewhere between 14 and 18 as a hemoglobin, If you're a cardiac index, 2.8 to 4.0, maybe even 4.2 on some people. Most people's arterial saturation is about 90, 92% with a PO2 of 90. So if you use those various, you're gonna get a a range of somewhere between 450 to 800 for your average person. But on bypass, it's much lower. It's somewhere between 180 and 380. And that's because our hemoglobins are gonna be somewhere between seven and nine. Most of us have cardiac index, pump flows calculated between 1.8 and 2.4. Your saturations are 99% or better, and PO2 is probably 150 or greater. So basically what this means is on bypass, we typically provide only about 35% of the at-rest DO2 that most people receive. And this, of course, is largely due to a lower hemoglobin and lower blood flow index, which I mentioned. So why do we care about delivery of oxygen on bypass? Well, the focus and the real focal point that it all started with is because of the delicate state of renal perfusion, the low PO2 levels in the medulla, and the high incidence of acute kidney injury post-bypass. This is really the impetus for focusing on how we can improve. So this was a slide that I, uh, from a talk I gave about two months ago here, Joe, when we talked about the renal perfusion. I just wanted to go over why the, the, the kidney is such a big focus when it comes to delivery of oxygen. And there's very uh, small print. I don't expect you to read that, but there's four articles there at the bottom. And I'm taking quotes from each one, so I just want to display them. Somebody can look them up if they want. And these are quotes from four research articles to do with tissue oxygenation. Kidney physiology and function are particularly dependent on O2 supply. This effect is particularly pronounced in the renal medulla where PO2 levels run as low as 10 to 25. That's just amazing. It is not surprising that the kidney might be one of the first organs to be affected by a global reduction in delivery of oxygen. And in the fourth article they quote, in vitro studies have demonstrated that areas of the kidney are prone to ischemic injury in cases of even slight reductions in renal delivery of oxygen. So again, this is another slide that I I stole from my own lecture back about two months ago with this. But just to remind here, the regional vari- variation in tissue oxygenation of the kidney, the high renal blood flow is first directed to the cortex to optimize filtration and reabsorption, basically going through the uh, nephron there, where the PO2 comes in at about 50. When it leaves the nephron, the, the blood flow then is going to perfuse throughout the, through, exits the afferent artery, and then it's going to go to renal, uh, leading to the renal tissues are perfused and leads to poor oxygenation, which is uh, borderline renal tissue hypoxia. This effect is most pronounced in the medulla, where PO2 levels are 10 to 25. So this is one reason why, the main reason why acute kidney injury and delivery of oxygen were so intimately uh, connected, and the focal point was so strong when it came to delivery of oxygen. So, yeah. I
0: I, I just want to add to this, because you taught me this also, is go back to that previous Mm -hmm. slide this is what surprised me the most. I'd like you to just quickly elaborate on it. Hypothermia does not help you in this circumstance.
1: Hypothermia and hyperthermia does not change the metabolic uh, perfusion needs of the kidney. And the reason is, is because all of the blood flow that goes to the kidney goes through the nephron. The nephron must do the work of absorption, filtration and reabsorption, which generates which costs a lot of ATP. In other words, you cannot go around the nephron and just perfuse the parenchyma tissues. You have to go through the nephron first. This requires an enormous amount of energy. And then it goes on to perfuse the the, the renal tissue. So there's no such thing as a luxury perfusion to the kidneys or over perfusing the kidneys. It's just like a packaging plant, like a package sorting plant. When it comes down the conveyor belt, the faster the more boxes that come down, the faster the sorters have to work. That's the same thing that happens with the kidney. The more blood supply that you plot that you send down, the more the nephrons have to generate ATP to do the filtration and reabsorption work of the nephron. Mm-hmm. So you can't get away from this, uh, where we can just overperfuse the kidney. They're on a borderline of adequate perfusion, and when you can only go less than that, you can't go. You can't and, go above that. And
0: again, cooling them down doesn't mm-hmm. do doesn't do you, change doesn't anything. Do you any good nope. because we have all believed that that was protective. If you, I, think it's, life, I think it's I think it's
1: Perfweb twenty three when I talk about mm-hmm. delivery of oxygen. I think it's called. This is the slides from that, and I show proof that hypothermia does not preserve uh, reduced metabolism of the kidney, and hyperthermia in exercise doesn't eat either. Your kidneys' perfusion stays very, very controlled, constant, just about. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt you.
1: So, how much delivery of oxygen is adequate for bypass? Now, I want to, like I said earlier, I want to give a tribute, mm-hmm. just like you did to Shoemaker and Dr. Rivers, uh, Joe, and your talk, to really these early and current pioneers of delivery of oxygen on bypass. Marco Renuzzi in Italy, Philip DeSomer, and, and, and Jay Trent Magruder here in the States have done an awful lot of work on this. And these aren't the only ones, by the way. A lot of these guys have collaborated together, but between these two, three, they've probably done over 25. 30 papers just on gold directed perfusion with delivery of oxygen, and we're going to talk about carbon dioxide consumption. So, I just want to give a tribute to them, and a lot of the papers I'm getting ready to go over are by these gentlemen. So, what has their, the gold directed perfusion research taught us in regarding delivery of oxygen on bypass? So, I'm going to go through some of these articles now. So, here's a Renuzzi paper back in uh, 2018, pretty recent. They looked at nine institutions, 326 bypass patients. And the purpose was to determine whether a goal-directed perfusion strategy aimed at maintaining oxygen delivery at 280 or greater reduces the incident of acute kidney injury. Now, part of what you're going to see is a lot of these studies take a different approach. Some do a more higher delivery of oxygen. Some do lower. They're really still trying to focus and find where is that key point that we need to be above. So... They had a goal-directed group where the perfusion was uh, greater than 280 and a perfusion strategy group where they just based perfusion, like most of us do, on body surface area and patient temperature. The goal-directed perfusion group had an AKI reduction of 67% compared to the perfusion strategy group. Magruder and his group did a study, Nadir oxygen delivery on bypass in regards to hypotension, and this is back in 2015. It took 170 patients matched with a 1.1 1. 1 to 1 propensity matching score. And they wanted to determine what is the absolute lowest delivery of oxygen on bypass that then becomes a risk factor for AKI. They retrospectively analyzed, analyzed 85 patients who developed AKI with another 85 control patients who did not. And remember, these patients were matched with uh, the propensity score of 1 to 1. So there are a lot of similarities, no outliers and differences, and they found in these matched patients, 85 who developed AKI and another 85 who did not. They wanted to see what the difference was. And what was the result? Well, in the non-AKI group, 85 patients, they discovered that they received a delivery of oxygen greater than 230 milliliters of minute per meter squared. And the AKI group averaged a delivery of oxygen of only two, 208. The non-AKI group had a mortality rate of 5.9 and the 30-day mortality rate, on the AKI group was 35.3%. They found that there exists a threshold, which they believe they saw in this study at about 230, for the de- development of AKI in cardiac surgery. Somer, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, a study back in 2011, O2 delivery and, and CO2 production, some of the things you talked about, Joe, in regards to acute kidney injury, they looked at 359 cardiac surgery patients and their purpose was to explore the association between delivery of oxygen on bypass and carbon dioxide production, and how that related relates to postoperative AKI. A retrospective analysis, multi-center study. Three hundred fifty-nine patients were analyzed for creatinine levels and, and AKI postoperatively. What did they find? They identified a group with a nadir DO2 of less than two hundred sixty-two. Okay. What they found was above this threshold there was only a 7.4 incidence of AKI stage two. And below this threshold, there was a 23.2% incidence of AKI. And this is a predictive value of point, 92.5%. Renuzzi, oxygen delivery during bypass and relating to acute uh, renal failure back in 2005. And again, this is why these guys have pioneered this. have been doing this back from about 2000, now almost 20 years. Took 1,048 consecutive cardiac surgery patients and their purpose was working under the premise that poor oxygenation of the renal medulla, which I was mentioning earlier, during bypass may cause renal injury. They proposed that the detrimental effects may be reduced by increasing oxygen delivery. Okay. Well, they indexed the lowest DO2 on bypass in an incidence of renal failure. They used a threshold, they identified a threshold of 272 uh, for acute renal failure. If you had a delivery of oxygen uh, on bypass, greater than uh, 272, you only had a 9% incidence of acute renal failure and a 1.7% mortality rate. If you were below that, you had an acute renal failure incidence two to six-fold with an 11% mortality rate. Mm. 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 Magruder, in a pilot uh, goal-directed study initiative, again looking at acute kidney injury after cardiac surgery, took 172 patients with a 1.1 propensity matching score, Their, their purpose do a goal-directed study to determine if a DO2 of 300 would decrease the incidence of post-operative creatinine levels and AKI. They took 88 control group patients, and they perfused them with a the delivery of oxygen of 240, and they took 88 and did delivery of oxygen of them of 300. The results, their control group had an average creatinine increase of 22% with a post-op AKI rate of 24%, and the goal-directed group. Increased creatinine was only average 9% with a post-op AKI of 9% only. So where did all where did we find all this? Because if you look at the uh, the, the, the papers I just mentioned, some went, looked at a DO2 level as low as 230, and some looked as high as, as 302. So what is the accepted threshold? What should we be doing on bypass? Well, after almost 20 years of research, and most people accept that these two research papers that were done by Renuzzi and de Solmer, and they've done more than one, that the threshold is somewhere between 262 and 272. And if you really want to be safe and, and err on the side of caution, use a 272 uh, delirioxid index when you're doing on bypass. And so we're going to look at that. Now I want to talk about the carbon dioxide production, which is something you talked about quite a bit, Joe, as well. In the human body, carbon dioxide is formed from the metabolism of carbohydrates, fats, and amino acids and is the waste product of cellular respiration. The body gets rid of excess CO2 during exhalation. But at rest, with a total volume of 500 milliliters, humans exhale exhale approximately 20 milliliters of carbon dioxide per breath, or approximately 240 milliliters per minute at 12 breaths per minute. The carbon dioxide production index is the carbon dioxide produced per minute divided by the body surface area, right? So if you have the 240, what I just said, and let's just say somebody has a BSA of 2.0, normal breathing is going to produce 100 to 120 milliliters per minute per meter squared of carbon dioxide. But on bypass, the normal range is somewhere between 32 and 50 carbon dioxide index. So what has the goal-directed perfusion research taught us regarding carbon dioxide production? We talked all about the oxygen delivery, what about carbon dioxide production? Now, there's known predictors of hyperlactemia, and basically it's defined as lactates above three during bypass, and those known predictors are a carbon dioxide production VCO2 index of anything greater than 60. If you're producing more carbon dioxide greater than 60 milliliters per minute per meter squared, this is a direct predictor that you're producing lactate. Again, on bypass, we should only be producing somewhere between 32 and 50. So above 60 is an indication we're reducing lactate. We're gonna talk about why that is. The respiratory quotient is a production of carbon dioxide divided by the consumption of oxygen, RQ, the respiratory, respiratory quotient. If it is ever greater than 0.9, Okay, this is gonna be an indication of that we're producing lactate, and we're gonna talk about these a little further. So what is the respiratory quotient? I stole this slide off another lecture, and basically I just wanna show you that RQ, if you look in the yellow there, it's the volume of carbon dioxide produced divided by the volume of oxygen consumed. So if you wanna look at where they come up with this number, the next yellow box there says simplified equation for aerobic respiration of glucose is six molecules, produces six molecules, so if you look there are six carbon dioxide molecules are produced for every six oxygen molecules consumed, so therefore this reaction equals one. So at the bottom I write there, if any degree of anaerobic respiration occurs, RQ values rise significantly above 1.0. So if we get into anaerobic respiration, this respiratory quotient will go above 1.0. We're gonna talk about why that is in a minute. So those are three known predictors of lactate production, meaning we're into uh, anaerobic respiration, anaerobic metabolism. If any of these two, if any of these things are occurring, okay. So if you look at the bottom, delivery of oxygen compared to carbon dioxide production ratio, this needs to be less than five. And let's just show you why that is. Let's just say, for example, we're delivering three hundred milliliters of a minute uh, a delivery of oxygen, and pro- we're producing forty. Remember, the normal range is thirty to fifty. So if we're in a normal state, we're, producing pl- we're delivering plenty of oxygen, let's just say it's 300, divided by 40, that gives us a ratio of 7.5. So you can see that if your numerator, 300, your delivery of oxygen starts to drop, and you're only delivering, you know, 250, and your carbon dioxide starts to rise, it to 50, right, you're going to get into that 5. If you get below 5, you're having a lot of carbon dioxide production and very little oxygen delivery. So you want to always keep this above five, and we're gonna see about how, how all these work in a minute. So here, these gentlemen, again, did, did research, and I'm gonna talk about their, their papers where they focus on CO2 production and the effects of it has on acute kidney injury. So in this study, back in um, 2011, their purpose was to analyze a, any correlation between oxygen delivery and carbon dioxide production during bypass. Well, their method was a retrospective analysis, 359 patients at two institutions, and they monitored creatinine levels and AKI stage one and two. So what were their results? They identified that there was a specific cutoff value for elevated creatinine and AKI. And the delivery of oxygen cutoff value was 262, we talked about earlier, but the delivery of oxygen versus carbon dioxide ratio had to be greater than 5.3. A minute ago, I mentioned 5.0. Some studies have showed 5.0. In this particular study, they found it needed to stay above 5.3. This had a predicted accuracy of 90%. So what's happening here, Joe, is that since if you read their articles, they tell you that ideally what they would like to be, have happening here is that we have a probe that we can slap under our venous line. that gives us live lactate levels. Continuous reading. We don't have such a device. We need to seek out, and they're seeking out in these studies, what is going to be an immediate predictive indicator that we are going into anaerobic metabolism. And that's what they're, that, that's what they're pinpointing here. And these are the known predictors of generating lactate. And they define hyperlactate. Lactate is greater than three, as I mentioned before. Okay, so CO2 production greater than 60, respiratory quotient greater than 0.9. I demonstrated on that slide that, you know, it needs to be uh, no greater than 1.0, but in their research, they actually fine tune it to where 0.9 is actually the cutoff, and delivery of oxygen to to CO2 production of less than five. So the purpose, because knowing that they aim to, this study aimed to identify predictors of hyperlactemia during bypass with a whole series of derived parameters of oxygen and carbon dioxide. So they're looking for more things, they're really digging into the weeds here to see what other parameters of oxygen and carbon dioxide are there out there that can tell us, maybe things can tell us even sooner or faster or more accurately that we're we're entering into anaerobic metabolism. And their methods, they took 54 patients, they sampled uh, every so often lactate levels and various derived parameters of delivery of oxygen and consumption of carbon dioxide. And I'm going to get a little bit deeper into this study. In a, so they collected, they basically entered the patient's age, gender, weight, body surface area, of course, and cardio bypass time. And at the end of each sampling time, they recorded these variables. Arterial PO2, arterial sat, arterial PCO2, same thing with the venous, venous PO2, venous sat, venous CO2, hemoglobin level, lactate level, and sweep. Your pump flow rate. And they were measuring the exhaled carbon dioxide from the Mm oxygenator, the ECO2, using a capnograph. It gets a little complicated with a capnograph because you have to, uh, there's many issues with it. So I'm not going to go into that exactly because not all of the, uh, unfortunately, not all of the exhaust nowadays comes out of the exhaust port because a lot of oxygenators are vented. But anyway, if you do sample it and you're getting what you feel is accurate, you have to do a calculation to figure out what is actually the, 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 uh, the production of carbon dioxide index? And there's the, the formula. We can talk about it uh, another time. So now, these are using this data, again, they were trying to find all kinds of other variables of oxygen and carbon dioxide that could be uh, calculated. And they did a whole bunch of things. The AV oxygen content difference, oxygen consumption index, um, delivery of oxygen index, O2 extraction ratio is a little bit different, uh, veno arterial PCO2 differences, delivery of oxygen versus uh, carbon dioxide consumption, consumption, and the respiratory quotient. So they did all of these calculations to try to find, was there anything more that they could uh, use as an indicator that we were going into anaerobic metabolism. And here's a study specifically about that. By Renuzzi, anaerobic metabolism during bypass, predicted values of carbon dioxide derived parameters. So they found in this same study, there was no correlation between pH PAO2, SVO2, and cross-clamp time and body surface area. There was no correlation. Whatever those numbers were, they were not indicating uh, that we were into uh, producing lactate. And that's surprising because a lot of people rely heavily on the SVO2. And it's actually, I not, I have. Yeah, and it's actually not an indication that you're into anaerobic metabolism. But no, all of us do that. But there was significant correlation was found between lactate production and cardiopul- cardiopulmonary bypass time the uh, consumption of carbon dioxide versus the delivery of oxygen, uh, the carbon dioxide produced versus the oxygen delivered, the carbon dioxide produced versus oxygen consumed, and here's what they found. Now, there were 54 patients, so this slide, don't let it be confusing, because it's a little confusing, but basically they found that they sampled out of the 54 patients they did, they had 130, samples where the lactate was under three, and they had 37 where the lactate was over three. And they wanted to see on these indicators, what was the difference? Well, part of bypass time for those that were under 49 minutes or less, did not produce lactate, and those at 69 or greater were. We don't know what the threshold is on bypass time. Carbon dioxide produced 51.4, but less than lactate of three and 82 above. Remember, our cutoff there is greater than 60. So if you had this, this CO2 produced index, VCO2 index of, of above 60, you were producing lactate. And You can see there they, they, they found that. Respiratory quotient, what I mentioned before, the cutoff was 0.9. If you Anybody who was in the range of 0.77 was not producing lactate. When you got above that average of 1.35 on the samples they took, they were producing lactates greater than 3. So these are very good indicators. So here's a delivery of oxygen versus a consumption of cardiac of carbon dioxide. Remember the 5.0 to 5.3, here again, if you were in the range of six, you were producing, um, if you were above, above five in the range of six, you were not producing lactate. If you were below five, 4.14 there, you were producing lactate. So these are very good indicators. So now let's look here at the graph that they have. So if you look on the left, it's just acute kidney injury, rate of AKI. And on the bottom, it's delivery of oxygen. Remember, we've we've concluded that somewhere between 260 to 270 is where you need to be as your absolute cutoff for delivery of oxygen on bypass. And I've drawn a red line there. Now look to the left of the red line. Look at the rate of uh, AKI when you are below a delivery of oxygen of about 270. It's way up in 20, 25, 30%. Look how it suddenly drops all the way down to 5% when you deliver oxygen to your patients at about 270. Look at that drop, from 25 down to 5. And it stays that way you know, with some variance along the way. Look at the delivery of oxygen versus carbon dioxide consumption. Remember, this is the 5.0 to 5.3 cutoff. AKI incidence on the left, 25%, 35%. And look at the sudden drop when you get to keeping this ratio at around 5, all the way down to 10, and as you go along the right, it even drops down to as low as 5 in some studies. And so look at here, same thing with an additional thing. And I highlighted in yellow there, a little hard to read. But remember, so here's our Nader, uh, Nader delivery of oxygen and AKI stage two. Less than 262, remember our cutoff, 262 to 70? Look at the rate of AKI, 20, 24, as high as 30%. When you deliver a greater, which is in yellow there, greater than 262, drops all the way down somewhere around 6 to 7%. Our threshold of... Delivery of oxygen, to hot, uh, the CO2 consumption. Remember, I said 5.0 to 5.3. If you're less than 5.3, where well, you shouldn't be, 20% and thereabout. If you're greater than 5.3, it drops down to about 7%. And the final thing is, people always ask, "Well, is there a nadir hematocrit?" Well, they actually they actually looked at this as well. And if you want to keep a general rule in your mind as to where you should be on pump as a nadir hematocrit, it really matters more the delivery of oxygen. But your nadir hematocrit, if, if you look at it. AKI rate of about 18%. If you're below 23.5% of hematocrit, and if you're above that, it drops down to about half of that. So these early pioneers, Renuzzi, DeSomer, and Magruder, what did they demonstrate? Number one, they demonstrated to us that delivery of oxygen during bypass falls below a critical value, 262 to 72. Organ hypoxia is triggered. It's very clear. They've done over 20 studies. And Joe, every time they did a study, they found the same results. Remember, we talked about this in one of the other presentations that something like 70 80% of all, all research can't be duplicated by somebody else. Well, theirs has always been duplicated. Uh, with consequent tissue acidosis leading to an increased production of carbon dioxide and that this mechanism may be a determinant of impaired postoperative renal function. They demonstrated that in hypoxia or dysoxia, cellular metabolism becomes anaerobic and the ensuing acidosis the result of the production of hydrogen ions within the cells produces carbon dioxide via the carbonic acid buffer system, right? So what's happening is people say, well, if I'm not delivering oxygen and I'm not anaerobically metabolism, how am I producing carbon dioxide? When you go into anaerobic metabolism, you actually produce more carbon dioxide, and this is why, because you're becoming acidotic. And all these, if you look on the left, all these hydrogen ions come into the carbonic acid um, buffer system formula. Push it over to the right and produce all this carbon dioxide. In fact, they produce an excess carbon dioxide. Okay? Yeah, try this is, get the pH. Up, this so is why this is why that cutoff of greater than 60 uh, of CO2, what I was saying, is an indication of anaerobic metabolism and, and lactate production because your carbon dioxide is going to actually be higher when you're in anaerobic metabolism because of how powerful this system goes into motion. What's the third thing that we learned from, the, from these gentlemen? They demonstrated that when production of carbon dioxide rises above 60, what I just said
0: is consumption. You mean consumption? consumption yeah.
1: yeah, they always use V for consumption and production. So, in the setting of inadequate delivery of oxygen, that an escalating anaerobic metabolism is occurring, and elevated lacto- lactate levels will very likely ensue. And number four, they demonstrated that in hypoxia, cellular carbon dioxide production versus oxygen consumed—that's that defined as the respiratory quotient has a critical threshold level of 0.9, and any uh, respiratory quotient greater than that is highly predictive of anaerobic metabolism and elevated lactate levels will ensue. At number five, they demonstrated that the delivery of oxygen to carbon dioxide production ratio, the DO2 versus VCO2, has a critical threshold level of less than 5.3, and any value less than that is indicative of an inadequate delivery of oxygen results in increasing production of carbon dioxide through anaerobic metabolism. And if you want to see an example, let's say we're the happy face there, we're delivering more than enough oxygen, cutoff level is 270, but let's say we're delivering 320, and we're producing a normal level of of, uh, carbon carbon dioxide, 40, which is the normal range. Look at our ratio, it's eight, well above the 5.3. If we're only delivering 240 of oxygen, and our carbon dioxide level production is 60, look, we're down to four. So this this is why this ratio makes a lot of sense. So now, Bob Groom did a wonderful uh, research, uh, review paper on all of this, and quoted all these gentlemen in that paper as well. And I'm gonna go over, this is sort of the final little section of the talk, but I'm gonna go over what what he did, and he talked about in 2017. Well, first thing he did was took a little non-scientific survey of perfusionists in 2017. And he asked them, do you measure venous oxygen saturation levels during bypass? 85% of perfusionists do measure uh, venous oxygen saturation. He also asked, do you routinely measure carbon dioxide production index on bypass? Only 9% of perfusionists measure carbon dioxide production index. He asked, do you routinely measure venous PO2 levels during bypass? 71% of people do measure venous PO2 on bypass. A lot of people don't take a venous blood gas. The last question he asked was, do you routinely measure serum lactate levels during bypass, and 43% of people, perfusionists, do measure serum lactates. So he, they, at his institution in Maine, they created a care plan that estimates delivery of oxygen based on hematocrit. They enter patient parameters, the procedure, the age, the height, weight, and hematocrit, and then this generates a table that indicates the flow that's needed at various hematocrits. To maintain your delivery of oxygen above that 273 critical level okay so here's what they here's the screen off of their um, their computer at the, the and their hospital so you don't have to focus on all that that's all the parameters but look what it generates highlighted in yellow there depending on your hematocrit it tells you how much pump flow you need to have to keep the 272 delivery of oxygen if you have a crit of 20 You need an index of 2.8 and flow 5.32 based on this patient's bsa and so on and they they calculated from the crit of 20 over to 28 so if you're at 28 percent crit you don't need to flow 5.3 you can flow down as low as 3.88 and you're still delivering that critical threshold of above 272 delivery of oxygen index so here's a monitor they have live readings of this and it's a little hard to read so i wrote on the right margin there what you're seeing the top one Reading there, it's 303.94. That's your delivery of oxygen index. Remember, the cutoff, 272. So on this patient, they're delivering well above the their, their threshold for necessary delivery of oxygen. The production of carbon dioxide, remember, that should be between 30 and 50, is 45. And their ratio, delivery of oxygen versus consumption of CO2, which needs to be above 5, is reading 6.1. So this is a wonderful uh, software program that I think they developed, where they do real-time monitoring of all three of these critical parameters to make sure that they are keeping the patient out of any semblance of anaerobic metabolism. And here's another screen that they generate, and I'll just show you the one in yellow there. And it does show you these same things, delivery of oxygen, if you look across the very top, SVO2, delivery of oxygen, the ratio. And if you look, it'll give you a maximum that they reached during the case, and below the yellow is a minimum. But the average shows you there, let's say, DO2. They average 294 uh, delivery of oxygen, keeping well above the 272. They, um, that ratio that's supposed to stay above 5, look, it's 11.85. Okay, So this is a really wonderful uh, thing. So basically, I want to thank you for listening. And I want to propose some discussion. And basically, what I want to say to, to you, know, we talked about this earlier, is Okay, all this sounds fine and good, but what can I do with this tomorrow to be a better perfusionist? So, since adequate pa- PaO2 and arterial saturations should be a given, if your PaO2 is above 150, uh, your arterial saturations are going to be essentially 100%. So, those two items basically should be a given. So, when you're looking at your formula for what you should be easy way to deliver uh, deliver of oxygen index, okay, you can um, Basically, look at your calculation. And what you're going to want to know is, what do I need to flow if my hemoglobin is 6, or 7, or 8, or 9? So that's why I've highlighted the hemoglobin there in red. And so if you look at your delivery of oxygen uh, um, formula there at the the, the middle one, you know your delivery of oxygen number wants to be 270. So you're going to solve the formula for flow. You want to know what your flow is. So you're just going to solve the formula differently. You're going to plug in, see at the bottom there, I have uh, the flow and the hemoglobin in red. If you have a hemoglobin, if you just do these three calculations, we want to know what you're supposed to flow on this patient. And on this particular patient, I assume the BSA of 2.0. And you can use 1.0 for your saturation, 100%. Just put 1.0 into the calculation. And then your PAO2, you can use whatever you want. It's not going to change things very much because that's a very tiny factor. But just use something like pa 2 of 200. And then all you have to do is put in your hemoglobin numbers of 7, 8, and 9. And it'll tell you what you need to flow for a hemoglobin of seven on this patient with a BSA of 2.0, you need to flow 5.36 liters. You plug in a hemoglobin of eight, 4.7, and a hemoglobin of nine, 4.23. So what does this tell you? Well, first of all, if your hemoglobin is 6.7, you're probably gonna tell the the physician, I need to add blood, right? And you're gonna get yourself back above seven. But you can see that if you're at 6.7 hemoglobin, you might have to increase your flow a little bit. And anywhere in this range, you're going to be fine if you have a hemoglobin of 7.5 you can still flow the 5.36 and you're going to be overflowing your target of 272 so this is a real quick easy way of basically just solving the formula putting in your known delivery of oxygen of 272 you put in your your body surface area and plug in three different hemoglobin levels which you're going to run into on bypass almost always seven to nine and it'll tell you what your flow rates need to be so now you're not flowing according to BSA and body temperature anymore. You're flowing according to keeping your threshold of delivery of oxygen above that critical level that we know is so important. So here I show it to you to solve the formula for put 272 in for the delivery of oxygen, whatever your BSA is, and um, you're basically just solving for the formula. I think these slides are extra. So thank you
0: guys for listening. Thank you. Give myself a hand. Can you can you do me a favor? Can you go, can I see your clicker? Your yeah. um, I want to go back to a slide, uh, David. I want to, oh, uh, here. It's over here. Uh, there's there's a a of click, 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 click. <laughs> There it is. Yeah. Right here. That's the slide I want to ask you about. So if you increase your Nader DO2, it makes a difference. If you increase your nadir do 2 and your co2 production alone makes a difference Mm -hmm. if you raise your nadir hematocrit on its own it makes a difference did they look at all three combined optimizing all three of those things since that that slide tells me they looked at one thing one thing and one Mm -hmm. thing What if they took those patients and they optimized all, analyzed all three of those simultaneously?
1: I think that's what they do. I think, I don't think, if you're just going to look at delivery of oxygen and try to keep your delivery of oxygen above 270, let's say 272, you are, I would say with a very high likelihood, going to be doing an excellent improvement for your patient. But it would be worth it to know you know, if you're,
0: what your production of carbon dioxide is as well, right? Because, so, so what I'm saying is, so I might, I might not be asking my question well. So let's just use the, the, the first two. So let's say, let's say the Nader DO2, the first one was, uh, two, goes was, was, was great, was greater than 262 mLs per minute per meter squared. The, 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 uh, uh, the uh, delivery Delivery so your do2 was greater than an index of 262 which is good right but your hematocrit was less than 23. well see that's why this slide
1: is a little bit of an off off the mark slide because the whole point is if your hematocrit drops you increase your flow and you keep your delivery of oxygen up Right. So the hematocrit alone is not an indication of anything because you can flow more as your hematocrit is low. And then when you give blood or concentrate or whatever and bring your hematocrit back up, now you have, you have the ability to flow less, right. which is why I just showed that three, three calculation at yes. the end. So just, this is, this is what I see all the time. I'm watching somebody do a case. The hemoglobin is in the sixes. Hey doctor, can I give two units hemoglobin 6.5? Yeah, yeah, drop in two units. They drop in two units the hemoglobin goes up, but they never flow, change the flow ever. So in other words, when you had the lower hemoglobin and now you've dropped in blood and you didn't change your flow, when your hemoglobin was low, maybe you should have had a higher flow mm-hmm. until you got your hemoglobin up. Mm-hmm. That's why targeting a delivery of oxygen keeps you above this level, even in the face of hemodilution, you know, something happening where your hemoglobin is low, you have a small patient, mm-hmm. you, didn't, you, you couldn't take off volume or something like that. So the hematocrit, Really becomes uh, your 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 indicator as to the fact that you need to flow more or less. Yeah, it's not in and of itself, which is why a lot of studies that just say, "Well, uh, AKI," this is a famous thing. We had a hemoglobin below twenty one, and we had AKI, so we can never have hemoglobin above twenty one. Well, you could have if you had flown more to deliver the oxygen. It has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. With, with the. I remember, you know, all of you guys went to THI. I did too. We, not wouldn't, me. We, we wouldn't give blood. <laughs> not me. Not you? No. we well, I'll go there one day. <laughs> uh, we didn't give blood if the hemoglobin was five. It had to be. Had to be it, it was crazy. It had to be below five. And uh, it didn't flow enough. You know, probably didn't. But, yeah. um, you know, if you. If like you, Shumway,
0: 30, 30, and 30.
1: And I'll tell you, if you want to really open discussion to something, I presented almost 15 papers on adequate perfusion, and not one of them looked at blood pressure. Do you realize that? They didn't even look at it. It's not part of the delivery of oxygen formula. And people focus so much on giving vasoconstrictor on bypass, keeping your blood pressure up, and reducing acute kidney injury, which uh, reducing acute kidney injury had to do with almost every single one of these studies. They don't even mention blood pressure, mm-hmm.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. right? But how many times have I said it? I've said it. I say it all the time. You can say it, Thanks, bud. Um, I say it all the time. Good pressure is not. Is not uh, 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 what's the how educator. do I to say? Is not a yeah. Is not a uh, no. It's not exclusive oh. to good perfusion. Right. Mm-hmm. You can have a great pressure and lousy perfusion, as yeah. is evidenced by. I won't say this was many years ago. What do you do when you have given more neo than you intended? and the blood pressure is going to skyrocket because your SVR is going to skyrocket because your blood vessels are all going to constrict. Mm -hmm. But you just have to fix it. There's no point in making everybody else in the room upset. What do you do? The famous trick, lower the flow. (laughs) You lower the flow and turn your vaporizer up all the way. (laughs) So you still have a blood pressure of 70, not 170 but you don't have good perfusion at all. If you've
1: ever mixed your neosyringe uh, double strength because you figured, uh, well, I, instead of giving you know, half a cc, I can give a quarter of a cc, and you kind of overdid it, and your blood pressure skyrocketed, and you turned your flow down to almost nothing, yeah. and you still had a pressure of 90, yes. and you turned your vaporizer right. to 5, and you still sat there for a minute or two before it started to come down, and you know exactly that your yes. blood pressure is indicating... Yes. no, I
0: had a friend. P- I'm asking for a friend.
1: Yeah, right. I yeah. was asking yeah. for a friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, now, we say this every time when the blood pressure conversation comes up. You can't run a zero or a 10 or some ridiculously low blood pressure. Why? You have to maintain capillary integrity. The blood pressure, as long as you're maintaining your capillaries open and you're not collapsing your capillaries, then blood flow is going to go. Do I know what that number is? Do any of us know what that number is? It's probably patient dependent. You know, um, I don't know exactly. Uh, there is, exactly. A, I
0: think there is a, a. I think there is a. Doctor, remember, Doctor Garani, He talked about that. Um, your capillary opening pressure, and I, it's somewhere in the. It's somewhere in the fifty range, isn't it? There's. I, I don't remember. You know, to it, maintain capillaries much, it, open, yeah. and it may be the 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 because when he was doing the TCD, yeah. he was talking. About, now maybe it's. Maybe it does depend on the patient, but I, I, I don't think it's 50 seems a little bit high because probably, people yeah. have perfused their brain with a 40 certainly right, before. Right. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what that is. It might be 30. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it might. It Good probably is. I need Dr. Harami to come back. I worked in a place not too long ago where they kept the pressure on bypass was 35 to 49. Never yeah. above that. Well, I told you. And, not and, sure. and they never, I never had any, I never had even a problem with AKI because I asked them. And that's uh, what they say. That's what they said. Come on. I, I, I
0: mean, do you have any? I mean, well, it was, it everybody was, does the, it was, the toughest cases and their mortality is the lowest. Give me yeah. a break. Well,
1: um, I don't buy they've that. been doing it for they, they've been doing that for about 25 years at this mm-hmm. place. But and it's yeah, a busy
0: it's a huh? busy place. Oh, yeah. But if you have uh, a if you have a 7 percent renal failure rate, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. you know, predictable, two and a half to one and a half to two and a half percent, three percent mortality for whatever. I mean, that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. A stroke rate of seven and a half percent, that's acceptable. But is that really acceptable? That's the whole point, is what do we find to be acceptable? Is seven percent stroke rate, a seven percent renal failure rate, 25 percent renal well, rate, 15 percent right. renal failure rate. Is that really acceptable? It's only
1: acceptable because everybody else is doing it. Right, that's what people measure right. by. Right, well, and that's yeah, a horrible, so I guess it must be okay. Right,
0: yeah. so we're not doing any. Right, right exactly. Right, right. So, what what do you think about? Would everybody like to take a five minute break, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and then we'll come back and open the phone lines and yeah, and, sure. and continue the discussion for a little bit of time? Would that be okay? You want to take how much time do we need to take a break? Uh, ten minutes. We need ten minutes because we have to do our we have to play our obligatory advertisements. Okay, yes, we need to we need to satisfy our satisfy our requirements for our generous advertisers they're all great so we'll go to break for 10 minutes play our advertisements and uh be right back so give us 10 minutes Mike's are live hey tabs hey hey okay welcome back we're gonna wrap up with our opening the phone lines and doing our uh our uh, 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 panel discussion on the topics and conversations from today tammy Delete us off.
2: Hmm. Rodell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's
3: excellent delegation. Excellent delegation. No, it, you know, John has talked about DO2, and, mm-hmm. and Joe picked up on the DO2 after all the conversations they've had during all these talks. It's interesting that, you know, it's just coming to light now. I mean, I saw it a, a few years back, and you know this gold directed perfusion is a great thing i think and don't quote me on this Levanova is doing something with their electronic medical tr- uh, records connect with connect and it has to do with do2 so it's making its way into the into that's the that's actually
2: what i was going to bring up
3: into the into that world as well so it's it's one of their um, nice little markers to, and a selling point for EMR. Oh, sorry. Well, it's, it's interesting, it's a, very interesting.
2: Right, as we're moving into where we're gonna have to have electronic charting, I mean, that's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. That is something that I've seen in the presentations um, from uh, Sorin, uh, yes. Dedeico, whatever, yes. Levinova, whatever. Yes. Sorry, can't keep up. Yes, Their connect system, mm-hmm. as well as some of the other ones out there. And mm-hmm. they're trying to make that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of that's parameters. But that, that's one in particular they are all focusing on.
3: Yeah, and it's it, it based on, I believe, that Renucci study. And, it's, it, and it actually will show up on your screen on your EMR. It, it will flash something on your screen and say like, hey, you're below your threshold, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, again, nothing that I had you know when I was starting out, but you know it's it's a great paper. These are great papers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And AKI, it's a, it's a big deal. A it big is a big
0: deal, and I think that we. I said this earlier when we uh, uh, before we left. I think what we accept is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But I think. Yeah. I think you know we're all so paranoid about blood transfusions. We are. And I think, right, rightfully so. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a liquid tissue transplantation, right? Mm. Right. Well, agree with that. And there are consequences Absolutely. to giving transfusions, but there's real consequences to anemia. Real consequences to having, I think, a uh, hemoglobin pump of six. I've heard of it. Many times. Right. You know, I talked about Shumway. do you all know what Shum you, we all know what Shumway was, right? We all know who he was, right? From Stanford. Oh. Shumway. Back in the old days. He's one of the the Cooley, DeBakey, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the godfathers of of cardiac surgery. Um and 30, 30 30 is a flow of 30 cc's per kilo, a pressure of 30. And a uh, temperature of 30. Mm -hmm. So that's 30, 30, 30. That's how he did all of his cases. Mm. And people survived. Now, you know. Now all the (laughs) data. There's more data. People (laughs) survived. Right. People Mm survived. So people can survive a lot.
2: Well, it doesn't mean they're not getting an insult.
0: Well, it also doesn't mean that those patients that didn't make it That they wrote off for some other reason would not have possibly made it. Maybe some of them, maybe none of them. I really don't know. Intuitively, however, I think that if you can reduce AKI rates by 1%, by changing something that we do every day when we work, I think that has impact to that one percent. Absolutely. Well, Does, sure. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Well. But we don't.
2: I think your point of what we find or other people find or institutions find acceptable is unacceptable. What is the acceptable rate that of people suffering an insult or, or dying that is acceptable? If we can change something about it, that should be zero.
0: That's exactly Mm -hmm. my yes. (laughs) Right? That is what I have been (laughs) thinking. Yeah. Right. The goal should be zero, zero mortality, unrealistic. It's not achievable, but that should be the
2: goal. It shouldn't be zero
0: percent, less than seven or 20 or whatever it is, zero percent stroke. But so what we have come to accept. That was my whole point. Yeah. It's unacceptable.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can tell you a funny story. In the, um, in the 80s, long before I was, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was still in my undergrad years, um, went to work at the hospital part-time just being a phlebotomist. And you had to have your hepatitis B uh, vaccination shots up to date. So um, back then, if there was no uh, artificial um, laboratory-derived uh uh, vaccination for hepatitis B. It had to be derived from people yes. who had hepatitis I B. Had to have well, that his, was right yes. around the big HIV craze was coming out. So I had my first shot. I think you had to wait six weeks later to get your second. One. You're supposed to get a third one. Well, mm-hmm. right about the time of the second one, that the department put a paper out on the on the bulletin on the board that I think it was. 0.7% or something like that of all people getting the hepatitis B vaccination were coming down with HIV, oh. but it was 0.7%. And I remember somebody saying, well, that's pretty low. And somebody else said, but if you're one of the 0.7%, that's 100% for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is if we have a 7% AKI and a 4% stroke rate, well, that's, that's, that's 100% if it happens to you. Right. So it it doesn't matter that it's 7% and that's
0: what everybody else is doing. There's still a lot of people mm-hmm. that are being devastated by whatever that is. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: especially if you think that there's, you know, 2 what 200, 200,000 hearts done now or 200. Yeah, it's 280. It's either 180,000 or no, 200. It's been 200
1: 000. something for a long time. Yeah, it? somewhere
0: yeah. around there. Yeah. No, I think it's 180,000. Is that yeah. much? It's gone down quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, back in the day, I mean, I remember a time when it was over Mm 700,000 cabbages a year. That's a lot.
3: Mm -hmm. It's down to
0: about, it's under 200,000 a year now in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's still, but you know, that's still a lot when you start talking about 7%. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Now some, I understand, are unavoidable. but I think we should try, we as clinicians, should do our level best to reduce that number for us, you know, and our patients. We can't do a whole lot for somebody else's patients. And I think these discussions can help, but this is an individual, this is a practice technique. What matters to you? Mm-hmm. And uh, some people, they uh, are happy with what they're doing. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we can do better. That's no, a, I, I yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. On the few rare occasions where I actually do a case, <laughs> you, <laughs> you did, did a case, case yesterday. yesterday. I know I did. <laughs> yeah, you're good for
1: another six months. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, back in 2015, I went to work at a place, and I won't mention the guy's name, but the guy was an excellent perfusionist. He was 15, 20 years, and. You know, he, he was just excellent. I learned a lot from him. And I, walked, I go in there and watch him do a case, and he's behind the pump, and he's pacing. And I said, you know, so-and-so, I won't tell his name, but why don't you sit down and relax? No, no, no. And I, I was wonder why, why is he on the edge of his seat? He's so nervous. Everything's going perfect. He just Everything he does was excellent. And, and I, after a while, I asked him, I said, you know, so-and-so, I said, why, why are you so, you know, nervous behind the pump? He says, I'll never forget what he said. He says, I try to run the perfect case every day. And he didn't even care if it was within his control right. or not. If the surgeon so much as reached back and made a comment about something, to him that was an imperfect case. Right. And He had it in his mind that he wanted to run the perfect case every day. And I just thought that was so interesting because what you just said a minute ago, Joe, is we kind of go in every day and we, we're comfortable with what we're doing, and so we do it. And uh, and he just stood out to me that, that it didn't matter that he'd been doing this as long as he had. It didn't matter that he really knew about as much as you could probably, you know, know and do. And he was still, like, just paranoid and and dedicated to somehow doing everything perfect every day, which Mm -hmm. is a big, big task because you
0: can't do it, you know. That's right. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to try. Yeah. We have to try. So um, I've got a comment here uh, from Franklin Odari. uh, Discussion around metabolic acidosis and safe use of bicarb in view of striving for adequate perfusion while meeting the surgeon's dynamic flow requests, causing stages of tissue hypoperfusion, underperfusion, and uh, hyper or luxurious perfusion on bypass. So you want to talk about that? Let's talk about bicarb. What do we all think about bicarb? It's not a substitute for good perfusion. Oh no, it's by no means. It's certainly, uh, so so Franklin, um, I think, you know, uh, Dardell, go ahead I'm a big proponent of it I give a lot you do I do
3: um, because you know we're we're using del We we're, we're, we have anaerobic metabolism going on so i I don't know what it is Where? It, it, the heart it, with with del nito because it's anaerobic it's there's there's lack of the blood substitute in the in the cardioplegia
2: you're saying because it, of the because five to one ratio?
3: Yeah, if it's more it's a. it's Instead a one of four, to four to one it's, or yeah, however you want yeah, it. It's, it's, it's more, a one to four. There's more crystalloid yeah. than there is blood. blood. Right, I understood that, but so I, I have less of a buffer with 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 uh, with the crystalloid. So, so how that do you blood. know you're
1: having myocardial anaerobic? Because if you take the cross clamp off, you see a spike? I, I don't your, see a your...
3: spike, but remember, I don't know, there was, a, there was a study back in the 80s about talking about myocardial pH mm-hmm. and how low it is mm-hmm. in an ischemic um, in an ischemic state. Mm-hmm. So when you take that cross clamp off, if I create a little more of a metabolic alkalosis, I can... Maybe counteract some of that stuff, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. like how you know you get leg ischemia from you know what is it the Impella mm-hmm. or something like that or or mm-hmm. a large catheter up mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a release of, of 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 you know some nasty stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you if you maybe pretreat it or or do something like that.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't think. I mean, I don't know. I'm just trying to think. I'm, I'm, but my heart's, my heart's that, come back.
2: My heart's come back. Yeah, little they nicer.
0: come back. I mean, I would. I mean, yeah. I guess there's probably some. I mean, I guess I imagine there would be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. know, It's a good question. I would think we'd need to measure, um, put a coronary sinus catheter in, and upon release of the cross clamp, reperfusion, mm-hmm. measure the lactate level. Oh, there's so the there's studies that have lactate. done that.
1: There's when the, we yeah. we came out with the well, we but when they came out with a coronary sinus you know, retrograde perfusion. People were doing that. They were mm-hmm. like, leave it in, let's take a sample. And the, the blood is, is pretty deleterious the mm-hmm. first 30 seconds or so. Wow. And one thing is very important. You mentioned acidosis. And I was doing this research. And I talk about lactates in almost every one of these studies. One thing people need to not forget is that the cells and the tissues detest ac- acidosis. Mm-hmm. They do not Function well they will do everything they can to not be acidotic and so anything we can do uh, cellular function enzyme function everything becomes dysfunctional and even the modest amount of acidosis on a cellular level really yeah and that's why if you ever notice if you have a patient's metabolic metabolically alkalotic you ever, we had one the other day uh, in the unit uh, 7.57 and, and CO2 was low. It was just a metabolic alkalosis. And I don't think that's very well understood. In fact, we had top physicians doing grand rounds, and I asked one of them, I said, Do we, do we understand why this patient would be in metabolic alkalosis? And he looked at me and said, Nope. I said, You're not going to do anything about it, right? I mean, you're not going to give the patient acid. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I said, Acid based product, are you? He said, Nope. Well, but when a patient's acidotic, and he, I mean, even below 7.35 or even that range, the cells, if you look at the studies, do not want, that's why we have so much buffer systems in the body. We have so many r- buffer systems in the body to prevent acidosis, right? And so, you know, it's important that um, we don't allow our patients to get acidotic. And then if they do, um, I'm not sure, was this question focusing on deleterious effects of giving bicarb?
0: Yeah, so is there is there any yeah. downside to bicarb administration? Mm-hmm. Is it is it, you know... So so I think two two parts to the question. I'm gonna to try to interpret it, but so the first one is you know, just basically dealing with metabolic acidosis. I think you answered that and saying that acidosis is, is bad. bad. The cells just de- detest it. So giving bicarb in that case is, you know, appropriate. You mm-hmm. give bicarb uh, uh, generously yeah. and you're not concerned about it. Metabolic al- alkalosis is not the issue, but Dealing with the cause, the root Mm. cause of the acidosis, which is the surgeon is saying, you got to turn your flow down. Mm -hmm. I can't see the heart's too full. Whatever it is. um, Dealing with that and treating the subsequent acidosis secondary to hypoperfusion Mm -hmm. is that how does that marry together? Does that benefit or does it not benefit because the acidosis, of course, if we sh- we shift our oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left, vis-a-vis, you're gonna you're going to uh, uh, release more oxygen more quickly to the tissue, so you improve tissue oxygenation in acidosis with hypoperfusion. So if you correct it, you then you're gonna go the other direction. Course. And you make the affinity for oxygen, the hemoglobin have a higher affinity for oxygen. You don't release it as readily. So, there's our dilemma now.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. But rarely do I flow underneath like
0: two liters. Right. Or two,
3: excuse me. That's cardiac index of two. I mean, if yeah. you look at right, but charts.
0: are you delivering uh, above two hundred and sixty-two milliliters? A, a index of two sixty-two. Above two seventy. 272. Oh i so see yeah, yeah. the math. I never I, 272. I always do it. But I think that's great. That we, very that close I mean, I've already learned something that I can that I could take mm-hmm. with me on this right. on today. Mm-hmm. And that's I I'm, I don't we, I haven't not measured DO2 routinely and I don't know why.
1: You know, is there an app and I should have researched in my research. I yeah. don't be an app. There may, all you have to do thinking. is there plug be, in the BSA. There may may it, be that's going to stay the same. And then you, all you have to do now is hit Where's hemoglobin and get a DO2 and hemoglobin because that's, that's the burial right. left, left, right? Because right. right. you know your, you you your PO2 is going right. to be a decent amount. And yeah. it's, only, yeah. it's only 3% of the equation anyway. And, and your PO2 is going to stay good. Your saturation, put in 1.0, 100% for simplicity or 0. 0.99 if you want. And all you have to do is say hemoglobin 7, what's my DO2? DOT? You know, and get four or five of them. And you know right there you know, without having a fancy machine that right. hooked right. up to your – you know what I mean? Because these guys have shown that if you can keep above these three parameters – you're not going to be producing any uh, lactic lactate or anaerobic metabolism almost anywhere in the mm-hmm. body, and yeah. I always found it interesting. Well, the
0: body doesn't like lactate either. Yeah. Well, that's especially the, the lungs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, lungs hate it. You know what's to
1: me funny about perfusion is, is this, there an
2: app? That's
1: what we want to know. Is there an app? Is there just uh, he doesn't. So know the question tablet. was: <laughs> Is there an app to
0: easily measure DO2? DO2. There will be. There, there will there. be. Excellent.
3: You guys
1: can make one. So don't, don't you ever think to yourself, you're sitting behind a pump, and you've got this everything going on, and your cure line goes up under the table and basically disappears behind the PA. Get, sure. And basically it disappears, and you basically sit back and hope that on a micro level, or on a regional level, that the body's just going to be perfused perfectly everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's not what's happening. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why if you're monitoring, there could be regional areas of anaerobic metabolism. Mm-hmm. There could mm-hmm. be micro areas, there could be macro, there could be places being overfused, unrefused. And so without monitoring some of these things, you're just saying, oh, my venous blood gas is coming back, great. As you can see, the SVO2 was not really an indicator. Right. Of and I think and so mm-hmm. for,
0: for our routine coronaries, that's generally not that big of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in, our, in the ICU setting, which we spend a lot of time in, do we even think about, Capillary bridges, like we used to. We used to think about these. probably learned that in school, right? How you know, perfusion deficits that are occurring at the microcapillary level, where you have this perfusion um, uh, defect that occurs, and you can actually see where the flow is. That they do it with these sublingual. Uh, I told you about those before. These 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 things you can look in at the microcirculation under the tongue and actually see instead of the flow going through, you can see it sl- sludging and stagnating mm-hmm. and not flowing properly in a very hyperdynamic cardiac environment. They're septic and their heart's just pounding and their blood pressure's tanked and all these things are happening and you think their cardiac output is 20. Mm-hmm. But at the capillary level, it's barely moving. It's not working right. And so I think those are kind of, you know, that's where these things, I think, really apply. I think for our routine coronaries, it's probably fairly uncommon, you know, unless you have some kind of, you know, problem with the position of the cannula or something like that, to have a regional, a regional deficit. Although, I don't know, you know, we have pulsatile flow. You talk to uh, Dr. Cohn at Texas Heart, and he'll tell you, uh, uh, you know, you know we, we capillaries are are continuous, perfusion, continuous flow, mm-hmm. and there's a whole bunch of patients out there walking around with uh, with uh, uh, ventricular assist devices or artificial hearts that are continuous flow. So, do you really need a pulse? Well, well,
1: I think we have to talk about it a little bit differently. When you go on pump and you cool a little bit, even if it's down to 34, 35, or if you still go down to 28 or 30, mm-hmm. when you cool, you're going to have uh, vasoconstriction on the capillaries and shunting is going to happen. How many times... Have you been rewarming or watched somebody rewarm and their SVO2s drop mm-hmm. and the perfusion will say to you, well, of course it's dropping, my metabolisms picking up. It's not going to pick up that much that fast. What's happening is you're rewarming and all these clamped down capillaries that have begun tissue poor perfusion are now opening up and you're getting a dump. Yep. That should tell you if you're rewarming and your stats were 80 when you were 20, you know, 30 degrees and now they're, you know, 68 because you're up three or four degrees higher you're having an opening of the capillaries that were constricted because you cooled or maybe gave an EO2, and now they're opening and that acidotic blood and desaturated blood is now coming back into the system. Hmm. That's what rewarming is showing you. And you are having some increase in metabolism, but you know, to me, you're also increasing your flow, right? We have a 1.8 at low and 2.2 and 2.4. So you're telling me that the metabolism went up, but I see that you've turned your flow up too but yet your estuarine is still a lot lower than it was. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I think when you see that, you have to think to yourself, wow, when I was cold, even if you weren't monitoring all these things, you're sh- it's showing you, the body's telling you, I was not really getting a lot of, you know, there was regions of tissue
0: that weren't getting perfused while you were at
1: mm-hmm.
3: that
0: cold a temperature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, well, let's go around the table and get some get some final thoughts. I think we're actually, we're, we're, we're over time we're to overtime. make up for yesterday, that's okay, we gotta make up for yesterday. Yeah. We sure. gotta make, so, we're going to start over here, Rodell. Final thoughts for the for the day.
3: I I really think I mean this this simplified, you know, flow calculation is is excellent. I mean, that is absolutely great. I think every sh- everybody should calculate everybody this. Everybody should be calculating. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I I always flow at a, you know, 2.4, you know, that kind kind of thing. And I do, uh, you know, a small calculation and I I will come down every once in a while. But uh, yeah, I think we should do this every single case. Mm-hmm. Or, just fi- or just find or just find a simple hemoglobin like seven, eight, and nine. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it's it's really easy. It's sure, yeah. really easy. And I can explain to the to my surgeon, hey, Dr. So and so, I am flowing at my two seventy two MLs. I am getting this guy or gal the correct flow
0: so we don't have this. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't go down any further. I'm at, I'm at yeah. the threshold. Mm-hmm. I'm at the threshold that yes. below this is going to create problems. Yeah. Move your cannula. Can you not just, can you, not just <laughs> yeah. you know, can, you see? Can, can you, you see? can you deal with this? Yeah.
3: Can you deal with this? Or, hey, maybe you have to reposition your cannula because I need to flow this. Mm-hmm. I have concrete evidence to say, like, hey, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you need to help me with my cannula. Mm-hmm. Or I need to do this. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. If your surgeon's evidence-based, you can really argue that well. You know? Oh yeah. But now it's and outside we have a couple. Of, yeah, that's good. They're I, only I, yeah.
0: evidence-based until they can't see. <laughs> yeah, then again, yeah, exactly. Then yeah. get it all yeah. goes out the window. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I would comment back on the bicarb giving bicarb. I would I would come down on the side that if you were having acidosis, um, you need two things. You need to treat it because you need to get the tissues out of acidosis. Then you need to find out why. Why you, know, you had, you're bandaging. Mm-hmm. You're, you're it's a band-aid to give bicarb because mm-hmm. sure. whatever's causing it probably still causing it. So I would be in favor of giving bicarb, getting yourself out of the acidotic uh, range and getting the tissues and, and cells more happy, functioning well, and then see why you're, why you're causing acidosis. see if you can fix yeah. that.
3: Yeah, mm.
0: get get out of the eight ball, you know. You do have to so, be get, concerned, obviously, yeah. with a lot of get bicarb, of but sodium will go up. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. but that's a different issue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Miss Barracina.
2: Well, I think these talks have been really interesting because I'll admit, I haven't thought as much about the kidney as I should have <laughs> and I've had a lot of kidney education in the past yeah. three or four months I and I wonder been. how many other people really are thinking about that mm-hmm. you know just with your neo talk mm-hmm. alone yeah um, so focused on one particular thing and did I have urine at the end of the case that's it mm-hmm. That's all the kidney that you thought about
0: mm-hmm. I've right. always said that I think the kidney is one of the most underappreciated organs in cardiac surgery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i've mm-hmm. said that many times mm-hmm. and it's and and that's and something that i am sort of into it you know because yeah. i've you know got the crt thing going mm-hmm. and this and that whatever but you know i've been looking at this in the oregon crosstalk, john you talked about that yeah. all of these things um you know i think that uh you know are are kind of touched on in school yeah a but little bit we forget about them you know
2: well when and you get out to practice right wh- what do you have to do that? You've given us something right. to kind of look at for that. But when you get out there, what do you have?
0: Participating yeah. more in these kinds of programs, mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Getting involved. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, we all need to get involved. That's what I'm trying. Yeah. That's my, my, my message for the day is what? On Facebook. Oh, Flow is King. Oh, Joe Greco says flow Flo is, is king, king. flow is king flow is king joe you're right why didn't you call in though why didn't you just pick up the phone and call look i got the phone it's right here uh the number's up yeah. on the screen 347-694-4400 yeah. if you call within the next 5 minutes <laughs> you will receive a perf web there. no you do it you should. thank you that's that was excellent that's awesome okay so, uh, or send me an email. Let me know. Let me know if you'd like to get involved, Joe. You and also uh, Franklin and uh, Mohana and who else is on here? Er- Erickson. Come on, guys. Get involved. Give me, a, Send me an email. Do whatever you want to do. All right. I, tomorrow, we're going to be, we have Dr. Samir. Hani Samir is going to come back. And you put the schedule. Oh, here. I got it right here. Um, And he's going to be talking about the optimal vent settings for resting the lungs affected by ARDS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be really good. And then John is going to be giving us a talk. I I went out to Orlando and visited John at his hospital. And he showed me around his 18 ECMO patients. And I was like, I saw this one and I was like, what in the? I, just look dude what the hell is going on today <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen this before and so we came up with this talk when VV vv ECMO is still not enough wow and that's gonna be a great I'm looking wow. forward to hearing this because right, I already I already know sure. the story but I want to hear how you how you break this down so uh dr Samir and speaking of bicarbonate acidosis we were talking about that lactate levels La- the lungs hate it you Mm -hmm. leave your lactate level Mm -hmm. elevated 10 11 like that you're going into ards Mm -hmm. guaranteed so your 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 hyperlactatemia can be caused by something else but that lactatemia is going to result in you going into ards and needing to be on ecmo so you have Mm -hmm. got to treat that you can't just leave that Mm -hmm. that's a major major problem and bicarb does not fix Mm -hmm. Like hyperlactatemia, Mm -hmm. you've got to clear the lactate. Mm -hmm. And that's why Z-buffs, CRRT, Mm -hmm. uh, better perfusion, fixing the underlying perfusion deficit Mm -hmm. is so critically important. And it's easily cleared with dialysis and CRRT. Mm Lactate is a very small molecule. It comes out quickly. Mm -hmm. Very easy to deal with. Okay, so we'll see you all tomorrow. And thank you all very much.